The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Just so you know, I actually sent uh, the people organizing the conference, I sent them two workshop descriptions and they rejected the first one. And they obviously went with the second one, which is the one that's in your uh, workbook. Uh, Do you want to hear the first one that was rejected? It goes like this, uh, and I truly did send this to them. Um, Of course, you yourself are never wise in your own eyes, but you are frustrated with the prideful people in your life who are. This workshop will equip you to deal with all those other people and give you tools to help them achieve a different mindset (laughs) that opens them up to the wisdom of God and the sound counsel that they so desperately need. So I think they made the right choice, but how many of you are here in this workshop because you know of someone who is wise in their own eyes? Good. So you're here to help them, and I think that's... Uh, That's wonderful. Um, If you don't mind, I'd like to start off by uh, reading to you the testimony that is uh, in your notes. Does everyone have the notes, by the way? It's a lengthy testimony, but actually it's been shortened considerably. This is the testimony of a 25, 24-year-old man in our church named Justice Mandeville, uh, who recently uh, came to know the Lord And it's a fairly radical testimony, but it also fits with what we're talking about in this workshop. So let me just read it uh, to you and just imagine this young 24-year-old man standing here and sharing this testimony uh, with you. He says, after I graduated high school, I was rejected by my family because I assaulted my dad. I was charged with battery and a misdemeanor and went to jail. After my release from jail... I found myself homeless, reduced to eating Del Taco hot sauce packets and food out of garbage cans in order to stay nourished. I was addicted to pornography and fighting. My life was a wreck physically, mentally, emotionally, but even worse, spiritually. I ended up in a mental hospital in Highland, California, where I was diagnosed with schizophrenia affective disorder. The pride of my heart was so bad that Satan and his demons were using it to stir my blood, to make me exalt myself and think of myself as someone that I wasn't. For instance, every time I looked at the sun or thought of the sun, I would think to myself or even speak out loud, I am the bright and morning star. In other words, I thought of myself as God, even over Jesus. Because my name is Justice, I identified myself as the angel of justice. I was also convinced I was a Native American from Tibet. From a worldly perspective, I was a lunatic with schizophrenia, but in God's eyes, I was a lost soul without a shepherd. There was a group of people who ministered and preached the gospel in the mental hospital on Thursday afternoons, but God knew that I wouldn't go to them and receive his word of my own accord. I already thought I was wise enough to be God. I had all the answers and didn't need answers from anyone else. So I saw no need and had no desire to know God's son, Jesus Christ. Through a series of providential events, including some powerful and vivid dreams, God helped me to understand that I was living my life in an abominable way, which he despised. These dreams brought me to my knees and left me crying out, help me, Jesus. 
and asking God to show me more. He did exactly that. Though I did not have a Bible to read, I had heard enough of the gospel message for God to work with. He began to break my pride or the pride of my heart and began to weaken the faith I had in myself and direct my faith to Jesus, leaving me with no choice but to ask Jesus to save me from the depths of my sin. When God humbled me to the point where I asked Jesus to save me from my sins, he broke my schizophrenia. I can't speak for anyone else, but I can say with confidence that my schizophrenia was actually just the pride and self-righteousness of my heart on steroids, which Satan and his demons were using to cause me to think disoriented thoughts and to make myself out to be someone that I'm not. But when God saved me, he gave me two precious gifts, salvation and sanity, both of which enable me now to worship Jesus from a humble heart. Immediately after saving me, God gave me a hunger for the wisdom of his word and a love for him like I never had before, making me thirst to hear his never-ending voice as he speaks to me through the Bible. I rejoice to read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. I had read this passage many times before, but Jesus was opening my eyes more clearly to see that it is only by his perfect and finished work of righteousness at the cross of Calvary that I'm saved. I contribute nothing to my salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Jesus Christ has become my mental stability. He has sealed me with his promised Holy Spirit who grants me access to a never-ending supply of humility so that I can see the pride of my heart for what it really is and make war against it with the armor of his word. Jesus now enables me to be a faithful servant to him through his constant supply of humility, which is the virtue of all virtues. Even when I do sin against him and break his law, all that he asks of me is to have faith in his sacrificial death and resurrection, humble myself through repentance, turn from my sins and receive his forgiveness by faith. If God hadn't broken the pride of my heart and humbled me, I would still be convinced that I'm a Native American born in Tibet. I would still be in a mental hospital today thinking that I am the bright and morning star. Even worse, I would still be subject to God's sovereign wrath. I thank God for Jeremiah 17:9, which the Lord used to enlighten me to the fact that my heart is utterly deceitful and sinful and unworthy of my trust. Jesus Christ is far more worthy of my trust than my sinful heart is. By the riches of God's grace, now this is his new identity, I am a part of the bride of Christ. God has made me his heir and has given me hope for a future of glory in this life and in the next, and he is my refuge and eternal home. All I can do is thank him for all that he's done and will continue to do for me. He is worthy of all glory and praise through Jesus Christ, who is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. On January 7th of this year, Justice Mandeville was baptized in one of our church's uh, care group meetings, and he's learning the joy of walking in community with brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we're learning the joy of, of making that journey together uh, with him. Uh, you should know that Justice still feels the risings of the old thoughts that were associated 
uh, with his schizophrenia. But every time those thoughts come, he prays and quotes scripture and chooses God's wisdom over the demonic wisdom that surfaces in his thoughts. And he shared with us that he's actually thankful that those thoughts still come because they force him to depend upon Christ in a way that he would never have to do if those thoughts did not reemerge. But his story um, is just simply one story of how God rescued an arrogant soul from being wise in his own eyes. A young man who used to think he was the bright and morning star, didn't need any wisdom from God, but who now is just thrilled to be a child of God and who hungers for the wisdom of God's word. That's the journey he's on. That's the journey that all of us are, are on. And it's a wonderful journey. It's a slow motion miracle um, that is happening in, in all of our lives. If, if you were to ask me, what is the great sin? There's different ways of of talking about this, but for our purposes in this workshop, if you were to ask me what is the great sin that keeps people from salvation, that keeps people from hearing and, and heeding biblical counsel, I, I would say for our purposes today that it is the sin of being wise in one's own eyes. Uh, that sin is the great enemy of our souls. It plagues everyone. And in Justice's case, and in our case, it can only be defeated by a miracle of God. And then even after being defeated, it still just keeps rising up, uh, resurfacing in our minds and hearts. And this is the matter that I want us to address in this workshop uh, in Romans 12, and our previous speaker just talked about Romans 12 a little bit in the general session, uh, Paul is telling us as believers in the church how to do community with, uh, with one another in a way that is shaped by the gospel. And there's a variety of, of instructions and guidelines essentially that he, he gives, telling us how to behave toward one another in order to make this, this community happen that is shaped by the gospel. And at the end of verse 16, among all the things that Paul mentions to tell us how to do community in a way that's shaped by the gospel, at the end of verse 16, he gives us a simple word of counsel, which goes like this in the New American Standard. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Why did he choose to say that? Why did he feel like he had to throw that instruction in amongst the others? The King James says, do not be wise in your own conceits. The New King James translates it, do not be wise in your own opinion. The English Standard Version says, never be wise in your own Sight. We all, I think, uh, if we surveyed the room, we all have some idea of what this probably means to be wise in one's own eyes, but, but I think a precise definition might be helpful so you can fill in the blank here. Uh, to be wise in your own eyes is to view yourself as already sufficiently wise and thus needing no additional wisdom from God 
or from others. So it means to, talking about perception that we just heard about in the last general session, uh, going to the issue of how we view ourselves, and to be wise in your own eyes is to view yourself as already sufficiently wise and thus needing no additional wisdom from God or from other people. Can you see why such a person would be impossible to counsel? This is why it's actually good in counseling sometimes to stop and address this matter in the heart of the counselee, this matter of being wise in their own eyes so that maybe a breakthrough can happen at this critical point and then perhaps you can make progress beyond that uh, breakthrough. So what I want to do with... um, the time that we have is to just try to sweep together seven instructions to help you and to help you help others not to be wise in uh, in your own eyes. The first uh, instruction that I think I can give to you drawn from Scripture is to realize that being wise in your own eyes is extremely dangerous to your spiritual health. This is deadly. Uh, in Proverbs 26, 12, Solomon says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. That's an amazing statement. The Bible, when you read it from cover to cover, abounds in hope for sinners, but it gives no hope to a fool who remains a fool. But even at that What Solomon is saying here is that there's actually more hope for a fool than for someone who is wise in their own eyes. The only destiny that awaits someone who persists in being wise in their own eyes is sorrow and woe, which is why in Isaiah 5.21, God says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. It's just a pronouncement of judgment and woe upon them. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is tracking the downward spiritual uh, spiral of people to spiritual ruin and observe the stages of this downward spiral. Starting in verse 21, he says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be what? Wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What utter foolishness. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They're wise in their own eyes and God lets them go. And you'll notice in verse 22 that a critical step in the downward spiral to spiritual ruin is professing to be wise. This is just another way of saying that they became wise in their own eyes, even to the point of now announcing it to everyone, that I am wise even though they are actually fools, thinking themselves already wise, they reject God's wisdom, and so God lets them go, and they descend into deeper foolishness and ruin described through the rest of 
the book of Romans. So the testimony of Scripture, I think, is clear. We should realize that being wise in one's own eyes is extremely dangerous to one's spiritual health, and it leads inevitably to spiritual ruin. But there's a second instruction that, that I would want you to take to heart and for me to take to heart in order to help yourself not to be wise in your own eyes. And that is, number two, realize that being wise in your own eyes can manifest itself in many ways, even in you. Even in you. You know, we're all pretty good at recognizing this syndrome in other people, aren't we? Um, and because we're so good, we're so keen in our ability to recognize this syndrome in other people that we assume that we would easily and quickly recognize it if it were in us, if it were actually there to be seen. But the truth is that we're not good at recognizing this syndrome in ourselves. So I thought um, I would serve you guys this um, in this session by... Uh, helping you to think through some of the various ways that you and others might be wise in your own eyes. I'm just going to read through these and just see if any of these have described you or if they do at times uh, describe you. And if any of you want to leave now before I read these, you're welcome <laughs> to. Okay. All right, let's just read through these. Uh, number one, you are so confident in your own wisdom that you see no need for counsel from others. And the multitude of counselors is safety is a proverb for lesser mortals who are not as wise as you are. <laughs> Number two, when circumstances prove you right, you are quick to say, I told you so, or I knew it, just so others around you can make note of the fact that you had that wisdom a little bit before they did. <laughs> when something doesn't go the way you just knew it would, you let the incident slip by without comment. Number three, when you hear criticism about another person, you are quick to draw conclusions about that other person without hearing the other side of the story, apparently feeling that you already have sufficient wisdom to draw those conclusions. Number four, you are quick to form judgments of people and situations, placing high trust in those judgments, feeling little need to get to know the people you are judging or to get input from others in order to adjust or complete your perspective. Number five, when experiencing disagreements with others, you believe that others should re-examine their thinking while you do not need to. They should not trust their perceptions because their abilities to perceive are not as advanced as yours, but it's okay for you to trust your perceptions. Number six, when people are explaining to you their perceptions regarding a matter of disagreement, you really aren't interested in listening to them. Instead, you use the time they are talking to prepare what you will say to them as soon as they stop talking. The great need of the moment is that they hear your perspective, not that you hear theirs. Number seven, you assume that whatever you are thinking is wisdom. Though you would never admit it, practically speaking, you define wisdom as thinking the way I think. On a related note, number eight, you are proud of your gender because people of your gender think in a way that is superior to the opposite gender. You long for the day when your spouse becomes more mature and begins to think the way you do. 
Number nine, you feel superior to non-Christians who just don't get it. You talk about the crazy things that non-Christians believe and do, or when talking about the things they believe and do, you frequently roll your eyes at their foolishness. If only they were as wise as you, they wouldn't think and live the way they do. If they would just open their hearts to God like you were wise enough to do, they just might become as wise as you are about things. Number 10, you feel superior to people whose political viewpoints are different than yours. When among those who disagree with you, you view yourself as the wise one, and those who differ from you are fools. When arguing politics, you aim not merely to prove that your opponents are wrong, but that they are stupid. Number 11, you don't see the need to make a priority out of reading and studying God's word each day. God tells you to meditate on his word day and night and to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, but you don't really see the need to go to that extreme. Your lack of time in God's word shows that you think you pretty much know what you need to know to get through each day successfully. In an average week, you spend 20 hours playing computer games or surfing the net or visiting social media sites, and you spend almost no time reading God's word. Obviously, you are pretty comfortable with your present level of wisdom. Number 13, you do not pray for wisdom because you don't feel like you lack it. You already have plenty of opinions about the stuff you are dealing with in your life, and you're pretty sure those opinions are wise. I mean, why else would you have those opinions if they weren't wise? You know, James says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. But we tend to think, well, I'll ask of God when I don't have an opinion about something. But we often don't pray and ask God for wisdom because we already have an opinion about something which we equate with wisdom. But even when you think you know what you need to know, that's especially when you should be asking God for, uh, for wisdom. Number 14, the Bible tells you to abstain from evil and fear sinning, yet you're not afraid of sinning. According to God's wisdom, sin is a big deal. According to your own wisdom, sin is not a big deal. Number 15, you willfully disobey God and do what God has prohibited. By your actions, you demonstrate that you flatly disagree with God's wisdom and prefer to operate according to your own wisdom. You have no problem putting the label good on something that God calls evil. Number 16, you submit to the ministry of a counselor only as long as his counsel is consistent with what you are already thinking. When a counselor criticizes you or contradicts your thinking, you deem him an unwise counselor and begin searching for a new counselor who has the good sense to agree with your perspective. Number 17, you think that 19 years of living has provided you with a level of wisdom <laughs> that surpasses what your 50-year-old parents have attained to. Amazingly, you haven't even worked hard at pursuing wisdom, yet you just seem to have it. <laughs> and there's a typo here. It should say 19. At, at 19 years of age, you now know enough to make life's most important choices without any input from your parents whose wisdom is outdated. 
Number 18, even when your poor choices have led to painful consequences, you still refuse to acknowledge that your unwise choices led to those consequences. Instead, you point the finger of blame at others. Amazingly, nothing is ever your fault. It's always the fault of the unwise people around you. Even your lack of wisdom is the result of other people's failure to give you the wisdom you needed. Number 19, the Bible says you cannot save yourself or even make one iota of a contribution to your salvation and that the only way of salvation is through the shed blood of Jesus. Yet you think that such a way of salvation is foolishness. Though the Bible clearly teaches otherwise, you believe that if you are good enough and wise enough and righteous enough, God will be impressed with you enough to want you in heaven with him forever. And number 20, when involved in a discussion with others, you dominate the conversation. Be quick to hear and slow to speak is a maxim that applies to everyone else, but not you. You simply must speak all your mind on every matter, and you consider it a service to others to make sure that no thought of yours goes unexpressed. Do you see yourself in any of those? Uh, I do. Uh, Even to this day, God help me. Uh, The sin of being wise in our own eyes is hideous uh, to behold. And, And the list could go on. Uh, we, we manifest being wise in our own eyes when we refuse to admit when we have been wrong, uh, when we get defensive whenever we're challenged or confronted, uh, when we give a shallow apology uh, that makes no effort to understand the hurt that we've caused and just say, well, if I, if I did wrong, I'm sorry. If I hurt you, I'm sorry. And that's supposed to be enough. Um, What you're revealing by that is I have sufficient wisdom to deliver an appropriate apology. And I don't need to explore whether I actually did do wrong. And I don't really need to know what your hurt is. I'm wise enough to deliver an appropriate apology. So this, I mean, we could make a list of uh, that is far longer than what I have, have read This syndrome of being wise in our own eyes can express itself in a thousand different ways, even in us, which is why Paul speaks in Romans 12 to genuinely saved Christians. And he says, literally, do not become wise in your own estimation. Uh, And that word become is important because even if right now you are not being wise in your own eyes, you still have to be careful that you don't allow yourself to become wise. That because you can, in a flash, see this syndrome manifesting itself in you at any moment. Well, there's a third instruction that can help you to not be wise in your own eyes, and and that is number three to realize that being wise in your own eyes is contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to the gospel of grace. Um, we can actually bring Romans 12.1 and 12.16 together. And I think you have this in your notes with Paul saying, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, and then a series of commands and instructions, among which is do not be wise in your own estimation. 
In Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul has spent over 300 verses laying out for us the glories of God's grace in the gospel. And having done that, he then begins chapter 12 with the words, I urge you, therefore, in light of the gospel, by the mercies of God that I have just been unpacking for you in chapters 1 through 11, and then among the instructions that follow is don't be wise in your own estimation. So obviously, Paul's counsel to not be wise in our own eyes is tied to, and it's birthed out of, his gospel presentation in the first 11 chapters. Anyone who truly gets the gospel and allows it to shape his life will not be wise in their own eyes. And that's why Paul takes the time to evangelize us with gospel truth before he delivers this command. He didn't open up the book of Romans and say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to you. Verse 2, do not be wise in your own eyes. He couldn't have done that. He wouldn't even think of doing that without evangelizing you first and laying out the glories of the gospel. And then emerging from that, he gives this instruction. Why? Because being wise in your own eyes is in conflict. It contradicts what the gospel of God's grace is supposed to engender in you. After all, what was the drive that led the human race into sin in the first place? We learned back in Genesis 3, 6 that when Eve looked at the forbidden fruit, a part of what made that fruit appealing to her was that it was desirable to make one, what? Wise. Wise. So she partook and so did Adam together with her and with their sinful choice, the human race ended up gaining the knowledge of evil and lost the knowledge of God. In other words, we became experts in evil and became stupid when it comes to God. That's what happened to the human race on the other side of the fall. This is why thousands of years later, Paul looks upon the downward spiral of sinners in Romans 1 and says they became fools. Their foolish heart was darkened in Romans 1. And in Romans 3, verse 11, Paul looks at the human race and says, there is none who understands. None who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good. There is not even one. Yet amazingly, in this state of lack of understanding, in this state of stupidity and foolishness, we were professing ourselves to be wise the whole while. This is what we were like outside of Christ. One of the ways of kind of looking at the day of our conversion is that on the day of our conversion, we essentially had to admit the truth of Romans 3, 11, and 12 that I just read. We had to say, amongst other things, you are right, God. I don't understand. I have been a fool Save me from my lack of understanding and from my foolishness and save me into the wisdom that belongs to you. That's essentially the transaction that happens on the day of our conversion. 
And even after being saved, as we've already touched on, this tendency to be wise in our own eyes can crop up in crazy ways that are antithetical to the gospel of grace. Even when we're thinking about the gospel and the fact that I've believed in the gospel, we can even have this syndrome corrupt that. Uh, For example, in the Roman church, there were Christian Gentiles in the Roman church who were applauding themselves for accepting Christ and looking down on the Jews for rejecting him. So to these Gentile readers, Paul says in Romans 11, do not be arrogant toward the Jews. Do not be conceited. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now we realize why Paul has been, what he's been doing in Romans 9 through 11, which is very difficult chapters to understand. He goes on that lengthy train of thought in those three chapters to go after this tendency for us to be wise in our own eyes as Gentiles maybe and applaud ourselves for the fact that we have believed in Christ and those Jews rejected him. And Paul is saying the Jews did not believe because God brought a hardening upon them in order to open up the way for you to hear and receive the gospel. And the only reason you believe the gospel is because God opened your eyes to see and believe the truth of it. You didn't deserve the gospel or to be saved any more than they did. Paul is fighting against this attitude, even in the hearts of Christians, even when thinking about the gospel, to make sure that this tendency to be wise in our own eyes does not corrupt what should be gratitude and grateful humility that it engenders uh, in us. So being wise in our own eyes, it's like the, the... it so contradicts the gospel. It's the, it's the last thing someone who's truly being shaped by the gospel should be thinking like and behaving like. The gospel engenders the opposite mindset to the mindset of being wise in our own eyes. Number four, fourth instruction that can help you not to be wise in your own eyes is realize that being wise in your own eyes is contrary to true community. It's contrary to true Community, again, Romans 12 is all about being a community that is shaped by the gospel. And uh, we talked about this a little bit in the workshop last night, but in Romans 12, 1, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, plural, brethren, plural, by the mercies of God to present your bodies, plural, a living and holy sacrifice, singular, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul is speaking to his readers as many individuals, and he's calling each of them to present their whole selves all the way down to the physical part of who they are as a single corporate community sacrifice to God. And then from there, he begins to tell them how to live in community with one another and how to live as one body, as one family in Christ. And he calls us to love in Romans 12, 9, and then begins to describe what walking in community as a community in agape love actually looks like. And among the instructions he gives when explaining how to walk in love in community with others is don't be wise in your own estimation. 
Apparently, being wise in our own eyes is a community killer. And we will never do community right if we are being wise in our own eyes. And it doesn't take a huge amount of strain thought to figure out why this is so. Someone who's wise in his own eyes is pretty sure that he needs no one else to complete his perspective on anything. That's not good for community. He doesn't ask for counsel unless it is simply to confirm what he's already thinking. When someone gives him unsolicited input, he's ungrateful, his pride is offended, he comes to quick judgments about other people with incomplete information, yet he feels he's sufficiently wise to make those judgments and to stick to them regardless of what other people might say. He's not interested in hearing any perspectives that are contrary to what he's already thinking because he's already so confident that his own perspective is right and complete. He's quick to speak, slow to hear, quick to anger also because he feels he has sufficient wisdom to fly off the handle and be angry quickly at others. I mean, imagine a church full of people who are wise in their own eyes like this. Our families and our churches would be a mess, rife with division and conflict. The syndrome of being wise in one's own eyes is a community killer, which is why Paul is targeting this syndrome in the very passage where he's trying to explain how to do community in a way that is shaped by the gospel. Now, up to this point, uh, our focus has kind of been negative. Um, we should not be wise in our own eyes, but and, and some of the, the negative reasons as to why. It kills community. It's contrary to... The gospel, it leads to spiritual ruin and so forth. Um, but positively, if you may be asking, if I'm not supposed to be wise in my own eyes, what should I be thinking? Should I go around thinking I'm stupid? Is that what God wants? What should I replace this way of thinking that is wrong with? And so let's turn a corner in a positive direction and look at how positively we should be thinking Number five, choose instead to be not sufficiently wise in your own eyes. So instead of being wise in your own eyes, view yourself as not sufficiently wise in your own eyes. This is how you should see yourself. I am not yet sufficiently wise. In fact, never... Um, allow yourself to think that you've arrived at a complete knowledge of anything. Be always reading and studying the Bible and learning from God. Always be open to more light from God on every single topic. When someone is telling you something, be very reluctant to say to them, I know. That should, those words should come out of your mouth with great difficulty before you dismissively say, yeah, I know, I know, I know even if they're telling you something that you're pretty sure you know. Even regarding doctrines that you're absolutely confident about and well-studied in, do not think you've arrived at a perfectly complete knowledge of all that there is to know about that doctrine. When you converse with someone regarding a theological issue, converse with them as a fellow traveler on an unfinished journey rather than speaking from a position of final arrival. 
speaking to other people from a know-it-all position should be very much out of place in the community of Christ. We should converse even on theological issues, counseling issues with one another as fellow learners on an unfinished journey, and we still have much to learn. Always be a learner. When you're facing a situation of conflict, when there's a difference of perspective between you and another person, you may in the moment have very strong opinions about things, and those opinions may feel absolutely right to you. However, in such moments, you should view yourself as not yet sufficiently wise. Look at yourself in the mirror and say that to yourself until you have fully heard the heart and the perspective of the other person that you are having the conflict with. As a general rule, when you go into a conversation where there is conflict with someone, uh, as a general rule, give them the floor first and give yourself an opportunity to hear their perspective. Esteem them more important than yourself. And when that person is talking and giving you their perspective, actually listen to them rather than using the time they're talking to think about what you're going to say as soon as they take a breath and finish talking. Be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. That's what it looks like, practically speaking. There have been times where, like in my own life in a conflict situation, I have been so 100% convinced that I'm absolutely right. Um, and I've been in the shower or driving in my car, and I have, I've actually spoken out loud and amazing speeches of what I would say to that other person if they were there uh, with me. And, and man, it's, it's so good. It feels so right. It's so profound. Sometimes I marvel at just the wisdom of how that just came out. I want to I write it down. And I just imagine the person, I imagine saying that speech to the person I'm in conflict with, and I just imagine them listening to my words and just melting into the floor. <laughs> And surrender and saying, you are so right, and I'm overwhelmed by your wisdom. You are right, and I am 100% wrong. And I, I have felt that kind of conviction and confidence and then gone into the meeting with the person that there was conflict with and gave them the floor first. And after listening to them, I end up throwing out 95% of everything I wanted to say. It's amazing the difference that can happen when just a few hours earlier, I was 100% confident in my perspective. And I'm glad that I gave them the floor first and in that moment had the grace to view myself as not yet sufficiently wise. So view yourself as not yet sufficiently wise. And this is a challenge that goes for everyone um, young and old, but, but it is a challenge that especially uh, is given in Scripture to young people. Um, and I don't know how many young people we have uh, in, in this room, but if you are a young person, don't be wise in your own eyes. View yourself as not yet sufficiently wise, and then chase after the wisdom that you need. That'll, that'll set you apart quicker than anything else. 
because that's not the norm for young people. In Proverbs 4, 7, Solomon speaks to his son and he says, the beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. I love that. And with all of your getting, acquire understanding. In Proverbs 2, Solomon says, cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding, seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. This is Solomon speaking to his son as a young man and telling him what his mindset needs to be. This is what young people would do who realize that they are not yet sufficiently wise. They will desperately crave more wisdom and chase after it and become wisdom chasers. <laughs> Yet unfortunately, young people are not known for this. In his book, Age of Opportunity, Paul Tripp, I think, puts it beautifully when he says the following, and you have this in your notes. He says, most teenagers simply don't have a hunger for wisdom. In fact, most think they are much wiser than they actually are and they mistakenly believe that their parents have little practical insight to offer. They tend to think that their parents don't really understand or are pretty much out of it. Most teenagers don't walk into the family room and say, you know, Dad, I was just thinking about how wise you are and what a good thing it is that God puts you in my life so that I could gain wisdom too. I just thought I'd come in and talk with you for a while and soak up some of the wisdom that you and I both know I desperately need. No, it doesn't happen that way. Teenagers don't tend to beg for wisdom. We struggle with that too as older people, but we especially see this in the young. So to young people, I would say, if you want to be wiser than your parents were, when they were your age, here's how. Be humble. Be humble and realize how little you know of all that you need to know and pursue wisdom as you would hidden treasure and be a wisdom chaser. How does a wise person behave? He chases wisdom. And underneath that, what drives that is a recognition that I lack it and therefore I will chase it. That is wisdom, Solomon says. All of us, regardless of our age, should see ourselves as not yet sufficiently wise. But how else should we think? This leads us to the sixth instruction that can help you to not be wise in your own eyes. And that is number six, deem God to be ultimately wise in your eyes. Deem God to be ultimately wise in your eyes. Paul sets a perfect example for us on this score, and he would want us to follow his example. It's amazing. In Romans 11, listen to what Paul says beginning in verse uh, 33. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the what? The wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? So just reading those verses that I just read, uh, keep in mind, Paul has been presenting the glories of the gospel up to this point of the, the book. And it is now, having done that, that Paul explodes in praise to God for his unsearchable wisdom. 
And his language indicates that the gospel is in and of itself the wisdom of God. It's a stunning manifestation of the wisdom of God. In fact, it's the crowning jewel of God's staggering wisdom. Our own human wisdom has plunged us into ruin and left us infinitely short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his unsearchable wisdom in devising and executing a most remarkable way of salvation, a way of salvation that brings forgiveness and justification to sinners while at the same time preserving God and his righteousness or preserving his righteousness. The gospel is absolutely amazing. In the gospel, God has done exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we would have ever asked or thought. And it is in this environment of wonder at the wisdom of God in the gospel that Paul begins to deliver the instructions of Romans 12 to us Marveling at the wisdom of God revealed in the gospel, Paul turns to us and says, in the presence of such an infinitely wise God who has put his wisdom on display in the gospel, do not be wise in your own eyes. Instead, let him be ultimately wise in your eyes. Be dazzled by him and by his wisdom. Anyone who's impressed by their own wisdom clearly has not encountered the wisdom of God. It's instructive to note that at the end of the first section of Romans, we find Paul extolling the wisdom of God in verse 33 of Romans 11. At the end of the second section of Romans, we find Paul once again extolling the wisdom of God. In fact, in the very last verse of the book of Romans, Paul refers to God as the only wise God. It's in Romans 16, 27. And one way this expression can be translated is that he's the wise alone God. Wise hyphen alone. He's, he's the wise God, but he's not just the wise God. He's the wise alone God. In other words, he's the God who is wise all by himself. He needs no counselors. He needs no one to speak into him. He needs no advisors to give him perspective or to complete his understanding of things. He's already totally, ultimately wise, having infinite wisdom, and he needs no one ever to teach him anything. God has never learned anything from anyone. He has absolutely nothing to learn from us, and he doesn't need our counsel. And what is true for God is not true for us. We need other people. We need counselors. We need other people to speak into us and to complete our perspective on things. But God doesn't need this. He is the wise, alone God. He's wise all by himself. Paul is saying we should look to God as being the ultimately wise one and then think about the ramifications of that. If this is how you view God, if you look at yourself and say, I'm not sufficiently wise, but he's the ultimately wise one, then what will you do? Well, you'll get into his word. You will read the Bible. You'll want to memorize scripture. These are the thoughts of God that at one time existed only in his mind 
And now you have the privilege of downloading them into your mind to where his thoughts actually become your thoughts. And if you're ever reading the Bible and you come across something and you're like, whoa, I, I disagree with that. Well, as, as Chuck Swindoll once said, that when you're reading the Bible and you come across something where you realize that you and God disagree, guess who needs to change, <laughs> right? If you view him as ultimately wise and yourself as not yet sufficiently wise, who wins in all of those disagreements? You go with what God says because he is ultimately wise and you're not. So you let yourself be critiqued by scripture and you change always to go with his opinion, not your own. When dealing with a particular issue in your life, you should always come to the ultimately wise one and ask him to give you his wisdom on every issue. So he's the one you pray to, to ask for wisdom, James 1, and he gives you his wisdom in his word. So you read his word and process his word in order to receive wisdom from this ultimately wise one who wonderfully has made himself totally available to us. It's not like God is ultimately wise, but there's a line of a million people in front of you and you just, good luck talking to them and getting access to his wisdom. No, he's available. You can come anytime. You can open up the Bible. You can come into his throne room and you can receive wisdom from the ultimately wise one who's always available to you. And that privilege is granted to you in the gospel. And that's wonderful, right? And that's what we want to point people to as well. We do this and we are also pointing people to the ultimately wise one. Well, there's a final positive instruction that can help you to not be wise in your own eyes. And that is number seven, deem your fellow Christians to be wise enough in your eyes to have a perspective worth hearing. Deem your fellow Christians to be wise enough in your eyes to have a perspective worth hearing. Earlier in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound or sane thinking or judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And that expression that God has allotted to each a measure of faith tells us that God has not given to any single believer the full package of all that he or she needs for life and godliness. God has intentionally left each of us with deficits of ability, deficits of knowledge, deficits of understanding, which then drive us into relationship and into community with brothers and sisters in Christ, whom he has gifted to supply what is lacking in us. And so when I read a passage like this, that God has allotted to each person, person a measure of faith, a measure of the full package that that is needed for life and godliness, that should impact the way that not only I see myself as incomplete by myself, that I'm not wise alone like God is, but it also impacts the way I look at my brothers and sisters. I, I look at them and see that they have within them things that can complete my understanding and make me whole. 
in Romans 15, 14 that we looked at in detail in last night's workshop. Paul looks at the Roman Christians and tells them these words, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. Paul is saying, this is how I view you guys as filled with with knowledge, especially now that I've unpacked the gospel for you up to this point of the book of Romans. So this is how Paul sees Christians in the church. And if Paul sees Christians in the church in this way, then we should be able to read a passage like this and then look up and look at each other and think some of the same thoughts that he is thinking. You and I should be able to look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and say to them, I myself am convinced concerning you that you have goodness within you that is of benefit to me and that you have knowledge within you that I would benefit from hearing. And therefore, I believe that you have something to say to me that will complete my wisdom and prove valuable for me to hear. There are encouragements along these lines elsewhere in Scripture. In Proverbs eleven fourteen, Solomon says, In the abundance of counselors there is victory. In Proverbs 24, 6, he says the same thing. In Proverbs 15, 22, he says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors they succeed. In Proverbs 19, 20, he says, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. In Colossians 3, 16, we're taught to be teaching and admonishing, like teaching and literally putting gospel sense into one another's minds. And we need to be doing that continuously. And that's something that involves everybody. It's not something I do by myself, but in relationship with others. I am teaching, communicating truth to my brothers and sisters, talking gospel sense into their minds, and I'm letting them do the same thing. And together we are whole. Together we are wise. When in fact, none of us are wise alone like God is. I love seeing this in operation in my marriage. I mean, for years, I was praying for God to mature my wife and help her to think the way I think. And I found out somewhat recently that she prayed for years the same prayer for me. But in recent years, like I really value the way that she thinks, especially when she thinks differently than, than me. That's a wonderful Thing. I don't want her anymore to think like me. Uh, but she has another way of seeing the world and processing things, uh, and it helps to complete my, uh, my understanding of things. And I find that even when I'm not with her, I kind of know how she would see this very thing that I'm dealing with. Uh, some months ago, I was in an elders meeting, and we had spent about 30 minutes as elders talking about a particular issue. And I'm sitting there going, I don't even know what I think about this. But then it hit me. I said to myself, I know what my wife would think. So I said to the elders, I said, I'm not sure what I think, but I have a pretty good idea (laughs) of what my wife would think. And they said, let's hear it. So I shared what she would think. And it was helpful to the elders. 
And I drove home from that elders meeting that night, uh, really patting myself on the back. I'm like, wow, I, I knew what my wife would think. But then I thought, would she really have thought that way? <laughs> so, so I got home and I, I said to her, here's what we were talking about in the elders meeting. And I didn't know what I was thinking, but I figured I knew what you were thinking about 30 minutes into the discussion of this topic. And here's what I told the elders. And I said, this is what you would have thought about this. And was I right? And she said, yes, you were. And then she said, but why did it take you 30 minutes to realize that? <laughs> so yeah, it's a little bit slow on my end, but I'm a richer man for now having two ways of thinking. Her thinking has become more and more embedded in me. And I can now see the world with two eyes, kind of rather than with a single eye of my own limited uh, perspective. I love seeing this operate in operation even in our elders meetings. We have seven elders and and the beauty of it is that God doesn't give to one elder all of the wisdom that is needed. He intentionally gives to each of us just pieces of deposits of wisdom and and so we each as elders share here's the wisdom I think God has given to me but we put it out there on the table expecting it to be seasoned and shaped by what the other elders say and I always marvel that it is together in community with one another that we're able to discern the Lord's mind on a matter in a way that I would have never been able to do all by myself or any other elder able to do all by himself. And so knowing this, it frees me up to share and make my contribution, but also makes me look forward to what the contribution of my brothers will be, looking forward to having my own understanding rounded out and completed. So we share the wisdom we think God has given us, but we share as one who sees himself as not yet sufficiently wise and I'm looking forward to you completing my understanding through your input. That's what happens in our elders' meetings and in our marriage, and just it can happen in a variety of contexts when we see each other and ourselves in this way. I love how this fits with the session that we just came out of, where the speaker was talking about how sin affects our perception of ourselves and of God and of others. And, and here we're talking about how I should not be wise in my own eyes, uh, but instead, how do I view myself? I view myself as not yet sufficiently wise. How do I view God? I view him as ultimately wise. How do I view my brothers and sisters in Christ? I view them as sufficiently wise to have a contribution that is worth me Hearing. And so in the gospel, this, we see this restoration of a right perspective that is given to us in, in Christ, which is so much richer, fuller, uh, more wholesome way to think than what we see in Romans 1. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they're bowing down in front of four-footed creatures doing utterly foolish things, and yet professing themselves to be wise. I'm 55 years old now, and I have never felt less wise in my own eyes than I do right now. Uh, life has a funny way of, of doing that to you. Um, I was speaking to our college students at our church 
a few years ago, and I, I don't even know if this is the right thing for me to say, but I said to them, I said, enjoy these years of your life because these are the smartest years <laughs> of, of your life. You are only going to get dumber from here in terms of your own self-perception. Um, but this process of becoming dumb and dumber in our own self-perception uh, is what sets us up and reshapes our heart to where now we're ready to receive God's wisdom uh, and it can actually fit in our hearts and it sets us up to receive biblical counsel that we desperately need. A number of years ago when our kids were smaller, and I'll just close with this, I, um, I took one of my children golfing uh, with me and they had never... Uh, golf with me before and we got to the first tee and I said to this child they were about 12 years old I said now let me tell you a few basics about how to swing and they just cut me off and said I got this I got this <laughs> so they lined up and and um, took their swing and completely missed the ball and I didn't say a word they lined up again took a swing Barely contacted the ball. It just dribbled off the tee and went about two feet off to the right. And then my child said, what were you going to tell me about <laughs> how, to, how to hit a golf ball? But they needed, they needed that experience to be humbled to where they're realizing, I need, I need wisdom. Uh, the beginning of wisdom, guys is get wisdom. Get wisdom. Be humble. Realize that you're not all that, that you don't got this. Recognize that you are not sufficiently wise, that God is ultimately wise. Pursue His wisdom above all else. And if you do that, you're not just going to gain wisdom on the other end of your pursuit. You'll discover that the humble pursuit of such wisdom is wisdom. It's the wisest thing that you can do to pursue wisdom. Let me pray and ask God to help us to do that. Lord, we have a long way to go, and I'm just so thankful that you're the kind of Savior who does not wait for us to reach perfect understanding, perfect maturity before you become our best friend. You give us atonement through the cross, and you befriend us even now when... Our understanding is so limited and we fall so far short. And you create a safe environment for us to just want to learn and grow, behold you and gain more and more of your wisdom. You're such a patient Savior. You, Holy Spirit, through Paul, say to Timothy to preach the word with great patience and instruction, because that displays your heart of patience towards us. And yet we can be so arrogant, Lord, and this syndrome of being wise in our own eyes will manifest itself at the worst times. And maybe what we've learned in this workshop will just help us to identify it and put some vocabulary to it so that we can see it for what it is, call it what it is, and then have a better way, a more wholesome way of thinking that replaces it. 
And I pray that you would help me to do that and all of us who are gathered in this room to do that and help us to, in a spirit of humility, as we are learning, help us to help others whom we are counseling to do the same. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.